Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Traditions, celebrations, and festivities are all taking on new forms this year due to the pandemic. Halloween and Dia de los Muertos are no exceptions. Dia de los Muertos has been a part of Mexican culture and traditions for centuries. The rituals can be traced back to the Aztec Empire over 3,000 years ago. The Atlanta History Center is continuing their annual celebration in partnership with the Consul General of Mexico and the Institute of Mexican Culture. Later this hour, we will hear about their virtual Day of the Dead programming, as well as the rich history of this holiday that honors the departed. And speaking of the dead, Oakland Cemetery is sharing the stories of their residents in a brand new way. Capturing the spirit of Oakland Halloween tours have become a favorite Atlanta holiday activity. For the past 14 years, the historic Oakland Foundation has welcomed thousands of visitors to the grounds of Oakland Cemetery for the popular evening event, but not this year. Safety concerns about the pandemic led to a clever idea for replacing the in-person tours. We're going to hear about that now from special events and volunteer manager Mary Fernandez and the acting film director Matt Huff. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. When was the decision made to film the tour and not conduct the in-person tours? Well, we decided fairly early on that we were going to offer a filmed version of the Capturing the Spirit tours. Accessibility is very important to the Historic Oakland Foundation. Uh, And so we knew that regardless of whether or not we were going to be able to hold the event in person, that there would be those who wouldn't feel comfortable coming on the site. Uh, And so filming the tours was our way of being able to share them as widely as possible. I think it's very effective. The Spirit of Oakland is narrated by Abby Howard, who was quite a controversial figure. She is buried in the historic cemetery. What can you tell us about her notoriety? Abby Howard was a notorious 19th century madam here in Atlanta. And she's a bit of a beloved resident among our volunteers uh, because they were able through the tours to raise funds to provide her with a headstone. She previously uh, did not have a grave marker at her grave site. And so honoring this tradition of volunteer involvement within Capturing the Spirit of Oakland, we chose her to be the guide this year. And in a funny way, Abby Howard, while notorious in some respects, uh, she is very representative of Atlanta. She was a businesswoman in a boomtown. She had an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, And like all of our residents, there's some good and some bad to her story. 
I was going to say, and she is the ultimate host. So uh, how perfect for her to take us on on the tour. This is true. Is is it true that she inspired the character of Belle Watling in Gone with the Wind? It's believed to be the case, yes. Okay. Well, then, all the more reason she enjoys pride of place on the tours. Matt, how did you decide which residents to feature in the film? Well, uh, Mary decides that, actually, in the Oakland staff. So, Mary, why don't you talk about how the characters are, are selected? We select which residents to highlight and to emphasize each year uh, based on a number of different factors. Um, and there is a great deal of volunteer involvement in that process. There's 70,000 people buried at Oakland and 70,000 different stories. And we come across these stories in different ways, whether it's one of our history buffs coming to us and saying, you won't believe what I just learned, or if it's something that the staff comes across in our own research, uh, when we're researching different themes and different topics. Sometimes the stories are brought forward uh, by descendants as well. Watching the film, listening to the stories, brings out how much these Oakland Cemetery tours really are about local history. And I was wondering how you gather the information about these residents to construct the stories. The wonderful thing about Oakland is that it serves as a mirror to the city of Atlanta. Um, You know, its residents reflect the diversity of Atlanta, its residents reflect its full history. The landscape of Atlanta can change, buildings can be torn down, built over, uh, but Oakland is constant in a sense. We have who is buried there and that doesn't usually change. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so Oakland is able to show a fuller story than almost anywhere else in the city, Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, And so we look for residents that also reflect this history, the diversity of stories, the many different narratives and the many different ways that you can understand how our city came to be. So the Oakland staff does as much research as they can on on the residents. Um, Some of them have a lot of things written about them and others have very little. And uh, that research is given to our playwrights, uh, who I have to tip my hats to, uh, Patricia Henrice and Amina McIntyre. And they gather, uh, they take the research and begin to create a, a five and a half or so minute monologue based upon that research, trying to capture not only the facts of that person's life, but sort of a, an essence of that resident that uh, they create through their words. And sometimes they have a lot to go on, and sometimes they have to use their imagination to really get a full picture of, of the character or the resident. I refer to them as characters, of course, because I'm a theater director, but they are, <laughs> they are residents. Now, Gilbert Ezzard is one of the Oakland residents who talks about being enslaved and living a double life. By day, he was a barber for Judge William Ezzard, and by night, he says he could be his true self. What was he referring to? So for Guilford Ezzard's script, and and Guilford Ezzard is certainly not a name that many people in Atlanta would know uh, because of the nature of his story, having been enslaved, although he did live to see emancipation. We explore the concept of the Hush Harbor or the Brush Harbor. It has many different names, uh, which were secret gatherings of the enslaved during the time of slavery in which they were able to practice religious ceremonies, have weddings and marriages, and share community with one another. And so the exploration of that double life really expands upon what the general public may or may not know about slavery and the situations of people who are enslaved, particularly in Atlanta, which was very much a city built upon slavery and the institution of slavery through the surrounding plantations, as well as the railroads. And so his story is so important to highlight because it almost addresses the erasures of how we've told the story of Atlanta's founding. And it's incredibly, incredibly moving. It is. Matt, 
the story of Gilbert Ezard really felt like the dramatic climax of the film for me. What was it like to direct this actor? Mm, well, uh, Jason Lauder, who's the actor who plays uh, Guilford, just did a brilliant and really powerful job expressing this this resident. It was definitely a collaboration. And I think with Jason's performance, I think for him, it was really getting in touch with that this person existed and they're buried there. And for him, just meditating on that was extremely powerful. You know, with all of the residents we go through and we talk about the idea that they lived as real people and every experience that they're referring to, they they lived and they therefore they have thoughts and feelings about everything they're talking about. A lot of the performers that are volunteers at Oakland give tours and they speak about Oakland from a tour guide perspective. But when they become the resident, they have to speak about the resident as a first person, as if they lived it. So with Jason, it was the same process as with the other performers. It's just going through and really personalizing everything and imagining that they live that life and how can we express that sense uh, to our audience. So it feels like you're, you're watching the resident and not necessarily an actor perform the resident. Yeah. The restoration of the African-American grounds in Oakland was completed this year. Would you talk a bit about that? So the restoration of the historic African-American burial grounds actually started through capturing the spirit of Oakland through fundraising directly by the actors. They were the ones that were bringing the stories to life and then encouraging the audience to donate and help support Oakland's mission to preserve, restore, enhance, and share Oakland Cemetery. And so the preservation of Oakland is deeply connected to capturing the spirit of Oakland. It's our largest fundraiser every year. And so the economic impact of this the event not happening in person is very real because we've been able to accomplish some pretty incredible feats of preservation through its fundraising. Well, there will be a ticket charge, not a terribly expensive one at all, but the hope is that viewers will make up for some of what you would have lost for the in-person tours, correct? Absolutely. And again, going back to the theme of accessibility, the film increases the accessibility of, of our stories. Not only will it continue to serve as a fundraiser for Oakland, uh, but it'll also allow us to share our stories even farther than we have previously. Two grave diggers are featured in the film. Who the, These grave diggers worked at Oakland and eventually were buried there. Was the option to be buried in Oakland a bonus in their employment agreement? No, not at all. <laughs> Wondered about that. I guess they didn't have written contracts for that sort of thing. No, the cemetery sold out in 1884. So whether or not you were buried there very much depended on the foresight of your family. The female characters in the film talk about the limitations women face during their lifetimes. Women who wanted to have a profession during their own era. Would you tell us about the female characters, the women residents featured in the film beyond Abby Howard? The women that are featured in this year's Capturing the Spirit of Oakland tour, their stories are both individual and also universal. So they show that women have always led complex lives uh, in which they've had concerns about their families and their careers and current events. And you can see that in these historic stories. There's a complexity to women and women's history that hasn't always been told. By sharing these particular stories, we're able to contribute to our larger understanding of women's role in, in the foundation of Atlanta and the foundation of our country. In the film, Abby Howard talks about Potter's Field, what is that section of the cemetery? 
Potter's Field is the Popper's burial ground at Oakland Cemetery. So uh, if you were too poor to afford a burial plot, or perhaps you were an unknown person that died in Atlanta, you would be buried in this particular section of the cemetery. Although there have been some kind of archaeological studies that have shown that there are some would appear to be middle-class coffins in Potter's Field. So because the cemetery sold out in 1884, it's possible that someone who wanted to be buried in Oakland may have chosen Potter's Field as an option to get into the gates, even if they didn't have a family lot. In the film, we hear about the Mexican legend of death. First, would you explain what that means? One of the traditional understandings of death within the Mexican culture. And this is an understanding of death that predates uh, Spanish colonialism even, uh, is that a person experiences three deaths. Their first death is when their heart stops beating and they cease to be alive. Uh, Their second death is when they are buried in the ground. And their third death is when friends and family no longer speak their name. Uh, And so the saying at Oakland goes that, you know, we hope that we can prevent this third death from happening to any of our residents, that we will continuously uh, tell the stories of our residents, uncover stories that deserve to be told, and share the stories that are historically important that may be unknown or underrepresented. And doing, doing so via the live performance and this year the film performance is just such a powerful way to learn about history. And there is this sense of just bringing the past very much into the present. When you're, when you're watching the video or you're there at the live event um, on a beautiful fall evening under the moon, it's just quite magical. And you really feel this connection through time uh, and you feel a part of Atlanta in a way that connects you with all of the great people that made up this city um, and their legacy here, whether it's a something they established that's still around or just their presence and their energy helped influence our city in, in ways that still resonate today. So it's just such a, a neat way to understand how Atlanta became the wonderful city that it is. That was acting film director Matt Huff and special events and volunteer manager Mary Fernandez speaking with Lois Reitzes. The Oakland Cemetery tour film Capturing the Spirit is available now for streaming or download. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org citylights. After a short break, we will hear about the virtual celebrations the Atlanta History Center is hosting in regards to Dia de los Muertos. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Atlanta History Center, the Consul General of Mexico, and the Institute of Mexican Culture have partnered together for nearly 20 years to present the Day of the Dead, a Dia de los Muertos celebration each year. With the ongoing pandemic, this year's celebration will be different though robust in offerings. Javier Diaz de Leon is Mexico's Consul General in Atlanta. We're honored to have him with us now via Zoom, along with Kate Whitman, the Vice President of Author Programs and Community Engagement at the Atlanta History Center. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. 
Thank you, Lois. It's uh, such an honor, such a thrill to be in this program. Oh, thrilled to have you. I was wondering how this partnership began. So I have been at the Atlanta History Center almost 18 years, so this would be my 18th Day of the Dead, but it actually predates me a little bit. Legend has it that there used to be a partnership with Woodruff Arts Center to present this program, and it kind of outgrew that the space at Woodruff Arts Center. So they approached the Atlanta History Center, who has 33 acres of campus in order to do this programming, and we have a really fantastic parking lot that has been used um, over the years to kind of, you know, have all of the food vendors and things like that. And then we have auditoriums for um, performances and, you know, are able to put a stage in our parking lot because it's an outdoor parking lot. That's kind of how it started. They outgrew their, their space at Woodruff. And so we were happy to be part of the presenting the festival. Well, the holiday is so rich in its celebration and history. Javier, can you give us a brief description of the Day of the Dead? Yeah, thank you, Luz. I mean, it it is, of course, something that has, of course, it's been present in Mexican culture and in Mexican uh, tradition for for centuries. Of course, it, it comes even way before uh, Europeans uh, arrived in the sh- at the shores of Mexico 500 years ago. So, I mean, it is something that comes from pre-Hispanic uh, traditions, mostly from the center of Mexico. And uh, one of the things that we always uh, reinforce uh, is that uh, this this is tradition. This is tradition from pre-Hispanic cultures uh, in central Mexico that have a lot to do with, of course, honoring an- ancestors. And, uh, and and getting close to ancestors during a certain part of the uh, of, of their yearly celebration, particularly on the eve of November 1st. And the tradition entails basically by pre-Hispanic cultures set, setting up uh, a tribute to the those who have passed away, putting at altars or probably you know spending the night at the tombs or where the, where where uh, ancestors have been buried, uh, putting there uh, and welcoming the spirits of our ancestors for a night, uh, which is the, that, that night that, that, that predates the, the Day of the Dead. And of course, that's why these cultures have, you know, things that are identified with that person of our family that we are honoring or we are receiving that night. So food, things that they liked during the, the, the time they were, they were among us, and all of that is a central part of our, so it's a, it's a, it's a pre-Hispanic tradition that of course got mixed with European elements after the Mexican, uh, the conquest of Mexico from, from Spain. And now it has evolved so many ways. And, uh, and we are very proud that it's being, you know, it is now considered by UNESCO a world cultural patrimony. Uh, and I think it, it is a wonderful thing because this is not about praising death or, you know, doing anything scary. So it's a totally contrary. It's a celebration and it's a family celebration. Yes, it's called the Day of the Dead, but it is really a celebration of life and and very joyous. The celebration takes place on two days, November 1st, which is observed as All Saints Day on the Christian calendar, and November 2nd. Why is it stretched over two days? It has to do with the, with a religious calendar, that of course, particularly the Catholic calendar that, of course, Mexico adopted as a part of our syncretism, as part of our mixed culture that comes from the pre-Hispanic and now and the European assimilation in Mexico. So, of course, uh, the Catholic elements of the, of, the, of the calendar involves, like you very well say, All Saints Day, and, uh, and on November 2nd is, you know, the, the Day of the Dead. And that is the time when all of this is a very strong part of the celebrations in Mexico. Hmm. You mentioned some special foods. What are some of those foods? And I was hoping you'd talk about the role of candy and sweets in the celebrations. Well, well yeah, I mean, of course... The food as almost always is a central part of everything that we do in our tradition in Mexico. And, and that has a lot to do, of course, with very specific foods of very specific regions in Mexico. Mexico is a multicultural country. 
and uh, and we have several different cultures and several several different ethnicities in our country with very specific food traditions. But this is mostly from the center of Mexico, Mixtecas, where are the uh, Otomíes, where are where are where are some of the regions that operate in central Mexico. Food like, uh, of course, there's a lot of sweets that are uh, derived from that. Uh, a very common thing that you see in Mexico and central Mexico at this time of year are uh, skulls made out of sugar. And, uh, and the tradition is that they were, when I was little, you could see those in bakeries, in, in places where you buy bread. And, and, and there you would see the, the, the sugar skulls. And you could buy your sugar skull with your name on it. And that is something we all wanted. I wanted my, my skull with Javier on top of the head, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and that's something that is part of, that we know and we see all around us when we're growing up in Mexico. And the second thing, very important, of course, is the the, the, the bread, the bread of the dead, the, the, which is the very traditional bread that is cooked and prepared in Mexico in this time of year. I love it. Uh, I'll tell you a quick. I always tell. I always think about this quick uh, uh, story that protects my family. When my when my, my my daughter was really young, we were living at that time in uh, Northern Jersey because I was working at the consulate in New York, and uh, and we were called upon by teachers at her elementary school because they were concerned because my daughter had brought this strange bread into school that she was calling it a bread of the dead, and, <laughs> and that and they were a little concerned. So what, what does that mean? She says she has bread of is it made of dead people or what? I, I thought that was so funny. Well, or rather ignorant, I don't know. But it strikes me as fascinating that when you spoke about wanting a sugar skull with your name on it, that this tradition of honoring the dead really is showing children not to be frightened of death, that this is the next stage of life, I guess, isn't it? Well, certainly, of course, of course. Uh, and, and the thing is that uh, more than thinking or, or focusing on the, on death itself, is focusing on the celebration of those who came before us, particularly our ancestors, those who we love and we, you know, miss so much and who have passed away. And the day of the death celebration and the altar is a way that we reconnect with them that we, you know, uh, in our minds, we are together with them again. And it's far from a sad or a scary moment. It's a celebration. What does that bread taste like? Oh, I love it. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a bread that, that, has a, that has some very specific uh, comino and spices, but it's, it's, it's delicious. It has mostly, a, usually a, a sugar-coated exterior. And in the inside, of course, it's, uh, it's made with a lot of milk and uh, it's kind of, vanilla tasting, but uh, I love it. I I'll make sure to get you, get, get you some, Lois. Oh, I would love it. What you describe, it sounds like a tres leches bread. It's, a, it's, a, it's more like a bread that you can dip in hot chocolate, I would say. Oh, you uh, have me that's, there. That's my special, my, my particular favorite way of, 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 of eating it. Scrumptious sounding. Kate, what virtual offerings will the Atlanta History Center have online for the Day of the Dead celebrations? We have a lot that we're going to be putting online as of this Friday, but, you know, it was a, it's a huge challenge. The Day of the Dead Festival is so vibrant. You know, there's colors and sounds and uh, live music and performances and the, and the smells. I mean, the smells alone, you know, of people making tamales on, on site and all of the fresh food. Missing that, I think it was it was really hard to think of how we could create something similar for people. And so working with the Council General Office and the, the Institute of Mexican Culture, working with them, we came up with some really great content. We actually have a how-to of pan de morto. So you could make the bread at home if you'd like, which is really fantastic. And then there are lots of really fun new content. So we have a Katrina walking through Oakland Cemetery and kind of talking about what a Katrina is and how um, how that came to be. We have. Would, would you explain what that is? I think that Javier might explain that better. Yeah. The Katrina is an iconic uh, symbol of uh, of all this, you know, time of the year in Mexico. It's a lady with a skull face 
dressed in very elegant attire from the early 20th, very, very early 20th century. Uh, its history comes from a famous sketcher in Mexico back then, uh, way back then, almost more, more than 100 years ago. His name is Jose Guadalupe Posadas, and he was, uh, he worked at a newspaper in central Mexico in the city of Aguascalientes, and he was a social commentary and uh, more like a kind of a, what nowadays is a political cartoonist. And he was making uh, some, uh, let's say, social criticism of people in, in uh, middle higher class in Mexico who rejected their Mexican culture and wanted to be more like, appear more like European. And he started describing them and portraying them uh, dressed in these very elegant fashions, but with a skull face. And uh, so that's where it comes from originally. Now it became, it became really a, a phenomenon because of Diego Rivera. Uh, uh, Diego Rivera took this, uh, this image, this, this, this very you know, iconic image that was created by Jose Guadalupe Posadas, and he painted it central in one of, one of his most famous murals that is located in Mexico City, uh, which, which is uh, about a, a summer afternoon at the Alameda, which is a central park in Mexico. And he portrays in that mural some of the most important personalities in early 20th century Mexico. And central, right in the center of, of Diego Rivera's mural is La Catrina. She's right there in the center. Uh, uh, and that is probably most uh, most scholars think that it was it was that that made it uh, you know uh, become the phenomenon it is now. See why we need artists. Artists are storytellers. They're historians. They're keepers of the culture. I read that short films will be in the lineup. Kate, what can you tell us about those films? The short films were all made by Mexican filmmakers and they explore Day of the Dead and also they explore death and dying in Mexican culture. And so there are three of those and those were all submitted by the Council General's office. And are, um, there's an animated one that's really fun and fantastic. And then there are two other short films that are a little more poignant and explore death and dying in Mexican culture. There are also great book recommendations, and we've got a lot of virtual tours. You know, when people come to our campus for Day of the Dead, they get to explore Mexican culture, but we've never really been able to take them to Mexico. And I think that's what this virtual offering will do. They'll get to see inside the Modern Art Museum and the Frida Kahlo Museum through virtual tours and the Fine Arts Palace. So it's really going to be a great way for people to feel like they're embedded in Mexican culture for the weekend. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, how welcome, particularly now that so few of us can travel. This is something of a silver lining. Javier, Hispanic and Latinx communities have been hit hard by COVID-19. Do you think that will lend different meaning or added significance to this year's Day of the Dead? I am, I am, unfortunately, I am pretty sure that the answer is yes, Lois. You're totally on point. Uh, Latino, Hispanic immigrant community has been particularly impacted by the pandemic. Uh, and their, the statistics show that they are overrepresented in, in most, of, in most uh, statistics regarding contagion and, and deaths, proportionally, of course, with the total population. And that has a lot to do with so many factors, but basically a lot of the structural reasons why they have less access to, to services, they have less access to timely information about prevention. And, uh, and uh, that is something that we are working so closely with so many organizations here in the region uh, to try to reverse. Uh, it's a tremendous effort. And I'm sure that, uh, and we all actually already know because we're doing several events regarding, for example, uh, uh, people sending us photos of their altars that they do at home for their deceased, et cetera. We are seeing so many of those that are connected to family members that have been uh, victims of this pandemic. Oh, can you tell us something about the altars, the tradition of the altars, and is there a particular style that's been common through the ages? Yeah, I mean, the altar is a central part, like I was saying at the beginning, it comes, it comes basically from the, from the original tradition of indigenous cultures spending the night 
in the uh, next to the graves or uh, where where the families rest, and uh, and, that it, and it is evolved has evolved throughout the centuries for mostly people uh, spending the night first at cemeteries and then doing at home what they would have done if they were spending the night at a cemetery, which is placing in the uh, on on top of the tomb things that are related to the person that has passed away. So instead of doing that at the cemetery, altar is something that you do at home, uh, but with the same element, you know, it's a connection. It's a connection to the deceased, to our, our loved one who has passed away. And ha- there are cert- a lot of elements into that, of course, like, like we were saying before, food, certain very specific food. Some people even put, for example, tequila or mezcal or oh my. drink uh, on the altar. Of course, a photograph, uh, or some of some image of the of the person who has passed away, personal uh, uh, property, personal uh, things pertaining to that, even like clothes or shoes, things are like that are often in there. So it's, it, it takes a lot of a lo- lot of creativity. There are certain elements that have to do with the order or the placement that has to 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 take place. It's not it's not it's not something uh, totally chaotic or you know that happens. Uh, with that certain order, there are there's a certain order of where the food goes, where the image goes, and uh, and people who, who are very into tra- the tradition in Mexico know how to do this, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, norms in terms of, in terms of how to build how to properly build your altar, and uh, and we have one right now, right now here at the Mexican consulate that we have built with uh, a lot of friends and particularly from. Uh, a, a digital radio station called Radio Mojarra, which is a very f- group of fun people, and uh, and uh, and it's actually sponsored by a funeral home here in Atlanta. Oh. And we dedicated this to two wonderful people who passed away this year. First, the wonderful Teodoro Maus, one of my predecessors, and he was Consul General of Mexico here for many years. I remember him. Yeah, he passed away. Very early, in January 2020, he was one of the first bad signs of what was to come during this year. And, uh, and they are, we also are, are honoring a, a co-worker, a wonderful lady called Esperanza Tapia. She worked here at the consulate for over 30 years, Lois. And we lost her a few months ago. And we are honoring her and, and, and Teodoro Maus here at the, at the consulate. So anybody who wants to see, you know, what is this, you know, altars about, Please feel free to come and, and, and see this Malta that I think is beautiful. Very meaningful. Why do you think Americans wrongly equate Day of the Dead with Halloween? I mean, it seems they are nothing alike. I think it's a trans. I personally think it's a transition that I, I think I've, I've been 20 years in the United States, Lois, and uh, I mean, working in different consulates and offices in the United States as a diplomat. I've seen an evolution in this past 20 years. I think there's been a very important, interesting evolution uh, uh, and a greater awareness of what this is about. And I would, I think it's natural that at the beginning, since we, since this festival and this event takes place exactly at the same time, and there's, of course, there's reasons for that. It's not a coincidence because it has, it has to do with a lot more uh, with, with, with a lot of things going on with the calendar and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, the mixture, like I was saying, between European and and uh, pre-Hispanic cultures in, in the Americas. But uh, uh, it's, I think it's natural at certain moment when you see some of the things to mix them and to think that this is Mexican Halloween. What like I have I have seen it being referred to in the past. I mean, I think throughout the years there is a greater and greater awareness of the particularities of the Day of the Dead. And, uh, and particularly it's happy substance and these positive uh, elements that I think divide, divide it from the, from the other tradition. I, I think the other tradition has uh, wonderful elements and it's also a lot of fun. I'm not saying that the other one is not. This is a different, this is family. This is, and a celebration of life indeed. Exactly. I think uh, what you say about a revolution in the understanding you've observed over all these years really connotes progress. This is a good thing. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think we are more and more uh, closer together. We are two nations that are, uh, you know, we share not only geography and trade and all that. We share people. We share families, millions of them. Every year, every decade, we have a stronger and stronger awareness and understanding about each other. And I, I am, and I have seen that go happen in the United States through my career in different parts of the United States. 
And I am very excited that, you know, in a place like Atlanta embraces Day of the Dead. And we, and we are so proud of our collaboration with the Atlanta History Center. And when we do that regularly with real life people at the History Center, I mean, I'm, it's one of my favorite days of the year, not only because of that, Mexican community coming in, coming into the, the area where the, where the center is and getting into the history center, but also seeing so, so many thousands of uh, uh, American, non-Latino, non non-Mexican families that come and, and admire the altars and enjoy the food and enjoy the music. I was, yeah, I was going to say the same thing that over, you know, I've watched it evolve over 18 years and now you know, maybe at the very beginning, it was most mostly people in the Latinx community that were coming out for the festival. And over the past, you know, seven or eight years, the audience is more like half and half. And it's people from all walks of life in different areas. And this is a day that they look forward to. You know, we our, our highest number in 2016 was 10,000 people. And last year, we had about 7,000. And it's it's something that people look forward to every year and they really come out to celebrate. And it's, it's really, it's been really beautiful. It's been one of the most exciting aspects of my work at the History Center. Well, this is the beauty of sharing culture. And I have so enjoyed this conversation. Kate Whitman, Council General Javier Diaz de Leon, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Kate. And uh, I hope you enjoy all these festivities around Dia de Muertos. Javier Diaz de Leon is Mexico's Consul General in Atlanta. He was joined by Kate Whitman, Vice President of Author Programs and Community Engagement at the Atlanta History Center. Their digital Day of the Dead resources are out today. You can find more information about their virtual content on our website, wabe.org citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Imagine being responsible for an accidental murder. Would you call the police? Run away? In the thriller Blood on Her Name, Lee Tiller decides to dispose of the body. And then things kind of unravel from there. The movie was filmed in Georgia, and earlier this year, Lois spoke with director Matthew Pope and Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lind, who portrays Lee. Here, Bethany talks about her first lead role in a film. It's been a big transition for me. I felt like my theater training actually with this film was a big help, kind of for the first time in my screen career, because I had played leads on stage before. I'd never played a lead in a film or even a TV show. And so I remember talking to Matt and Don, his writing partner and our producer, about just knowing, like, I know I know how to carry a play on stage live. I don't know what the process is going to be like doing it on film out of sequence. and But I feel like the knowledge of carrying a character, an arc, and a story all the way through helped this time around <laughs> with, with being able to see the whole picture and at least in my mind having a map of where I wanted her to go. Matt, why did you want to situate this story in a rural area? There are probably a few reasons, some of them more practical than others. I think the themes in the film and, and some of the aspects of the disconnectedness that the characters feel, the sort of loneliness is um, is something that felt at home for me in a more rural environment. We always talked about the film taking place um, not in a city, not in a town, but almost in the space between the towns. And it was important in our locations and everything else that we were doing that you really felt that sense of not having a lot of social structure around. Um, and I think there's a lot you know, that comes from that dynamic of not having the traditional structures that might provide some sort of guidance, some sort of assistance in situations like this. So from that standpoint, it always felt like a story that would resonate somewhat in that environment. Mm -hmm. Practically, we knew that we were going to be making a smaller budget film, that we wanted to try to work with what we had available to us as we were developing it and writing it. That was something that made it make sense from a practical standpoint as well. In the film, the accidental killing of a man at her garage shop, Lee, your character, Bethany, mm -hmm. 
decides to return his body to the family. <laughs> Why that instead of burying him or <laughs> getting rid of the body? I think, well, first of all, because that would be the end of the movie, and that's no fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's also, I mean, the thing I love about the film and this character is she's just kind of a regular, decent human being. This thing happens, which is an accident. It's a conglomeration of bad choices made by other people, bad choices made by her. And this thing happens. What? So what am I going to do now? Am I going to... Am I going to dump it somewhere or am I going to try to make it right in some strange, twisted way? And for her, you know, that's her answer. Lee's father is the town sheriff, and their relationship is fraught, to say the least. (laughs) What can you tell us about the dynamic between them? There's definitely a complicated relationship there, and you you gather from early on that there's tension and that that they've got a lot of distance between them. I think that's part of what was fun about exploring the story was working out sort of the the echoes of why that is Mm -hmm. and how that influences some of the choices that Lee's making. I think for Richard, Lee's father in the film, as well as really all of the characters, there's a, a desire to protect the people that they love. And they're each going about that in different ways. And they're, they each kind of have different lines they're willing to cross or not cross in doing that. But I think each of them, it was important for us writing it to feel like that was a consistent theme. Bethany, you and Will Patton, who plays the role of Richard, mm-hmm. your father, have really intense scenes mm-hmm. whenever you appear together. Yeah. Would you and Matt talk about achieving that level of intensity? Can you pull back the curtain for us, Matt? (laughs) How do you get that tension out of two actors? Well, if you're me, you just let them do what they're going to (laughs) do. It it really wills a, a lovely person and was lovely to work with. He has a real desire to find the grounded sort of reality in what he's doing and to feel like the things the character's doing and saying make sense to him. He came in uh, a few weeks into our production, so we had been shooting for a little while, and he came in, I think, kind of probably a little bit, if I'm speculating some, not sure what he was getting into on a smaller film like this, and, you know, is he going to regret it? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the, the very first day that he was on set, we were shooting one of those more intense scenes that you're talking about. Uh, It's the scene where Lee and Richard are arguing in Lee's carport. And so we spent a a lot of time, more more than we normally would have, just blocking the scene, rehearsing it, trying to get a sense of it, because it was really important from that first scene on that we establish who they were in relationship to each other, what kind of dynamic they had. Yeah, that was what was really fun about it is we trusted that Matt had the eye of, you know, where where this whole big picture is going. And I remember we, we rehearsed that scene, and then I think you left for a while. And we, Will and I, just ran it and ran it and ran it. And a lot of actors have a million different processes, and you never know if yours is going to match what somebody else's is. <laughs> um, and, and he and I did have different processes to a degree, but he comes from theater also, actually, and he wanted to just rehearse it. And he kept saying, are you are you okay? You don't, are, do you want to stop, you know, doing it? And I was like, no, let's keep doing it. Because it gave, it gave us that sense of like, A, we, we didn't have to worry about the words anymore. We knew those, but we just were able to fine tune all the little things that we wanted to explore while we were running it. And then we had the opportunity to do lots of takes too. Which you don't have live on stage. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Lee keeps making terrible mistakes <laughs> that lead to further unraveling of the situation. Do you think her moral compass is stronger than what we're accustomed to seeing in other thrillers? Yeah, I think so. I think that's hmm. part of why we were interested in telling the story this way. You know, we're not all Dexter. We're not serial killers that can easily just, you know, move past our moral qualms about something and and move on. And I think it was something that felt very 
grounded and interesting in, in saying, okay, well, if you find yourself in this situation, but you can't just dispose of the body and move on with your life and, and be okay with it, then what? Mm. We see a series of flashbacks slowly reveal how we get to the murder. Would you discuss the role of flashbacks in this story? One thing that we actually made a decision on really early, and I say we, I'm, I'm talking about Don Thompson, who's my writing partner and, and the producer on the film. Very early on, we decided not to use flashbacks to actually show what happened in the incident itself, um, which would have been pretty standard, pretty typical way to tell the story. We thought it was a lot more interesting to never fully show the lead up to it and to force the audience to kind of be in that constantly evaluating, reevaluating position of what do I know? What do I think? Do I feel like she was justified in what happened or, or not? What we did use the flashbacks for was to try to give a bit of a view into where Lee is coming from in all this and what causes her perhaps to make some of the decisions that she's making and to explain some of what might be going on inside with her. I think we found that to be a, an interesting use that, you know, give us a little bit more because she doesn't have many people to talk to through mm -hmm. the film. Um, <laughs> you know, Bethany's in every scene in the film, but a lot of it, it's Lee on her own doing things that don't enable her to talk to other characters. And when she does, she's often lying to them and, and not able to fully really talk about why any of this may have happened. So the flashbacks were kind of a way to get into her psyche a little bit and understand some of maybe what's motivating her in, in some of these decisions that, as you said, are, are not, not always helpful decisions for her. <laughs> <laughs> that was director Matthew Pope and acclaimed Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lynn discussing the thriller Blood on Her Name. It can be streamed now on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with chef and cookbook author Asha Gomez. Her new cookbook is called I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and Lois Reitzes is our host. You can follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. I would also love it if you'd follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. You can listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And please do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.